0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can open it to Ephesians chapter 1. We are in a series studying through the letter that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians 1. While you're turning there, a couple just announcements for, uh, about life in, in this church family. Um, if you have a middle school child in your home, we want to make sure that you know about the students' world record night. I kind of wish I was able to do that when I was in middle school. And so this is going to be a fun night. Uh, coming up soon, and I cannot encourage you enough to get signed up. You can check the website, grab Matt Thompson. If you don't know who he is, he's our student minister. Somebody around here will point you to him, and he'll be able to tell you all about getting signed up to participate in this event. Uh, Similarly, uh, we have uh, not middle school students. We have our college students. And at New Hope, uh, we try to really have the mentality that we want to send college students away to school. Hopefully their time at New Hope has shaped them, and they're ready to go and represent Jesus on the campus of whatever school they end up at. We spent some time this past week, a day with the campus ministry at uh, Purdue, and uh, we had a wonderful time with them. And just was a reminder of the importance of our college ministry here at the church. And so we send care packages uh, to our college students, and we collect things from our church family to go into uh, these care care packages, and they get packed up. Because of everything else that's going on at church, we kind of ran up against the deadline. And so if you are up for it uh, before Tuesday, I think, is that right? No one corrected me, so I'm going with Tuesday. Yes, before Tuesday, if you want to stop by the church and drop off something to go in one of these care packages, it's greatly appreciated. Last announcement. Uh, We want to pray together as a church, uh, big time. And we want to make sure uh, that whatever we're doing, uh, that together as a church family, we're praying. And so we're going to have a series of prayer gatherings around what's next for our church family. And uh, we're going to do those on Wednesday nights. It's going to start this Wednesday night at 6.30. Now, you're like, oh, Wednesday night, I've got this or that. I, I totally understand that. Set a reminder on your phone and just join us from wherever you're at. Just to know that our church family is praying from 6.30 to 7.30 at some point during that hour about seeking wisdom from the Lord and discernment about next steps as a church family. What, what's the future look like? And we've been meeting and planning, but we want the church to pray together. And so we're going to start that this Wednesday There'll be a worship night two weeks from that, or the the following Wednesday uh, that we'll come together and pray uh, during that worship night. And so mark that on your calendars. We would love to have you. Elders will be here uh, leading a time of prayer on Wednesday evenings. So let me pray for us, and we'll jump into Ephesians 1. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. I just ask a, a blessing on our study this morning. We need you, and we ask that you would speak to us through the power of the spirit that lives in us, that you gave to us, that you sent to us, and the power of your active and living word. Would you tell us what you need us to hear today? We ask you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our words, spoken and unspoken, are so powerful. I've always uh, struggled with my words. Now, I'm not saying I've always struggled with talking. Some of you would be quick to correct me on that. Like, no, you talk and you have conversation. I don't struggle with carrying a conversation. I don't struggle with talking to people. But I've always struggled with my words. I've struggled with the words that I've said to people that have hurt people that I love. I've struggled with the words that I didn't say and then never got a chance to say that have just kind of stuck with me, times I wish I could get some time back to re-say something, fix a misspoken word or statement, and another chance maybe to say something that I just held back and didn't get out. I've struggled with my words, and maybe you've been there too. You kind of think back on your life, this struggle. Many of us know that there's times where we wish we would have said something, but all of a sudden now we don't have a chance to say it anymore. Times where we wish we would have just been able to stop what we were saying and think a little bit more about the words we chose than the ones that we happened to throw out at the person we're talking to. And then there's that weight of second guessing yourself all the time about, man, how have I, why did I say that or why didn't I say that? Our words, spoken and unspoken, are very powerful. For a lot of my life, I've struggled. It might seem comical to you, but I've really battled with three simple words. I love you. It's always been a struggle for me, and I've I've done uh, some counseling and figured out it comes from some things in my childhood. But I've really had a hard time offering those words. For whatever reason, those three words have had a difficult time making their way up and through my rough exterior. It's just been difficult for me to tell people, I love you. And I've always kind of battled that always kind of had that struggle of, of offering those words. I can't really remember a time where it was easy for me to throw it out. And I've actually had to do some verbal gymnastics to avoid saying it to some people. And I've created some super awkward moments in my life. Someone says, hey, I love you, man. I'm like, yeah, you do. Wait, uh, <laughs> but you know, like that didn't come out <laughs> the way I'd hoped, like me too, man, right? And I've, I've just have battled it, struggled with it for the longest time. Many of you know this about me too. I carry a vivid reminder of the power of spoken words that were misspoken too. My senior year of college, uh, my wife and I were planning our wedding here. Uh, you, you married the preacher's daughter here. Like, you know, if I'm your preacher still, this is where Abby's get married. So uh, this is what you do you come up here. And so we were in Florida in school together. We flew up on our spring break and we were planning our wedding. And so we flew in on a Monday. I'll never forget it. And we're in the airport. And I remember just feeling this need to, like, have a great first impression on my in-laws. I hadn't really got to be around them a lot, given the distance of where we were living. And I see their car pull up at the, the old Indianapolis airport. I kind of see through, and I'm like, all right, I got to grab Sarah's stuff and my stuff. And I'm walking. I'm getting ready to walk out to the car, trying to make that good first impression, and my phone rings. And so I go, and I answer the phone, and it's my mom. She's really emotional. She's wanting to talk about something. And I'm feeling the pressure to carry Sarah's stuff, to impress her parents, to be like, hey, your daughter didn't even carry anything out here. I don't know why I felt that pressure. But like, I was like, all right, I, I got to make this impression. But she's crying and wanting to talk about something on the phone. And I'm trying to get a word in to say, hey, like, I, I'll call you right back. Just give me a minute. I have to do it. And she just keeps going. And I think just feeling the pressure of the moment, I just snapped. I said, I don't have time for this. And I hung up. We get all of our stuff, get it in the car, go back to the house. And Tuesday morning, I get the call. She died that night. The last words weren't the words I wanted them to be. Our words, spoken and unspoken, are so powerful. You know, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot of time, a wiggle room to take this lightly either. This idea of the power of our words, what we choose to say, what we choose not to say, the Bible's pretty clear that we have to take this seriously. I think Jesus had the most profound teaching on this. You remember what he said in Matthew chapter 12? He said these words, for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Man, that's so profound. So what I say out loud is a reflection of what's been going on in my heart. Have you ever had that moment in your life where you kind of wish that when your words were spoken, somehow you could pull something out and shoot them like a clay target before they reached the ears of the person you were saying them to? Anybody resonate with that the way that I do? Have you ever said to yourself, man, I wish, I wish I didn't say that. Or have you ever said to somebody else, I wish you didn't hear that. Like, I wish you didn't hear me say that to you. According to Jesus' teaching here, though, what we're saying is not I wish you didn't hear that. Is what we're saying is I wish you didn't see that. I wish in that moment I didn't give you a glimpse into what's really going on in my heart. And my words just showed you. And I wish they didn't. Now, if that's true, if what Jesus just taught here is true, and I think, if I had to guess, like based on a shared experience of the look of affirmation on all of your faces this morning, yeah, like that is pretty true, right? If that's true, then the opposite is also true. If the words that we speak out loud to people are a reflection of what's going on in our heart, then equally true in Jesus' teaching here is that the words that we choose not to say are powerful too. The words we choose not to say are also a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. Like when we refuse to speak the truth, when we see somebody we love making poor choices, and we excuse it away, and we say, like, I feel this nudge from the Holy Spirit to say something, but like, I, I, don't, I don't want to say I don't want to make it weird. And we refuse to speak. It's a reflection of what's going on in our heart. Fear, lack of courage, a lack of compassion or care, maybe pride, selfishness. We feel that nudge to give somebody that encouragement because we've noticed something in their life, but we just say, ah, it's not that big of a deal, and we don't offer it. Those moments where we can't get past the awkwardness of our own pride and just say what we really feel like this person needs to hear, but I just refuse to say it. I, for whatever reason, decided not to say anything. See, our words, whether we speak them or we choose not to speak them, are so powerful, so powerful. I like the way Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, describes this power. It says this, that the tongue has the power of life and death, and those who love it will eat from its fruit. But my favorite is the way Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible, The Message, translated this verse. He said this, Words kill and words give life. They're either poison or fruit you choose. Your words are so powerful. Here's what I find fascinating about today. I'm going to get you in on the life of a pastor for just a moment. I could not have planned to preach on these two verses we're going to look at today and have it line up so perfectly with the timing of this truth. The last three weeks, I've sat in three living rooms with tragic loss. And this truth was affirmed to me over and over again over these three weeks, that our words matter. And they matter because our time is limited. We are not guaranteed tomorrow. And so the teaching of Jesus and the teaching of Ephesians 1 is going to remind us today that we are not guaranteed tomorrow. So we have to be intentional today. Like we have to take this seriously. And the Apostle Paul did exactly that. Paul wrote this letter to this young church in Ephesus, and he chose his words so carefully. To me, it's like the Apostle Paul had his sense of time and his understanding of the power of his words in perfect alignment all the time. Like all the time, he had this sense of urgency around the timing of his life and the power of his words, and they just seemed to come together at the perfect time. He would say the right thing at the right time, the exact right thing that someone needed to hear. It's as if when the Holy Spirit nudged him, he said, okay, I'll say it, and he would say it. We have these beautiful words in Scripture as a result. Let me illustrate it for you this way. If you have your Bible, flip over to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 19 and 20 tell the story of this church getting up and going. We've referenced it over these last few weeks as we started this study in Ephesians a few different times. Acts 19 and 20. In Acts chapter 19, Paul gets run out of town. David mentioned that in his sermon last week. He gets run out of town. And in Acts chapter 20, he wants to gather the elders together, the elders of this church, those who have been commissioned by God to lead and care for this congregation. And he wants to gather them together again. And so he can't meet them in Ephesus. It's too dangerous. So he meets them in this place called Miletus. And he he gathers them together and he gets these elders. And as you start to read chapter 20, he says some important things. He'll tell them like, hey, you got to be careful. Watch out. There's going to be some people that come in from the culture and they're going to come in and they're going to start to teach different things. And you have to be aware of that. And you have to protect the church from false teaching. And he reminds them, you live in this culture in Ephesus of great temptation, and you have to disciple and lead people to protect themselves from that temptation. And then he goes on and he explains to them what his plans are, and and then he gathers them together. And the verses that impact me are found down in chapter 20, verse 36. Here's what Paul says. He says, or Luke, their author of uh, Acts, tells us that took place. He says this, When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them, and they prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. So Paul explains to them, like, hey, based on the work that I've been called to do as a church planting missionary, you will probably never see my face again. And He wasn't doing that for shock effect. He was doing that because he loved them and he wanted them to know, like, hey, now's your time to step up. I'm not going to be able to come back. Paul knew that when he would go on to these other missionary journeys and plant these churches, ultimately heading to Rome, that there was a high risk that he wasn't going to make it out of whatever ministry work he was doing. Very high chance, because of the danger, because of the culture that was rejecting this, because of the Roman culture at the time, that he was going to ultimately end up giving his life for the mission of Jesus and not be able to make his way back to Ephesus. He understood this, and he told it to them. Here's what Paul knew. He knew that every time he spoke to the people that he cared about, it very well could be the last time he got to speak to the people he cared about. And so he chose his words wisely. And he chose to speak the unspoken things, the things he didn't have to say, the things that may not seem important, but he knew I might not get another chance to say this. And so I want you to hear this. And that's what he does in Acts 20. He sits them down and he tells them how much he loves them, how much he cares for them, how much hope he has for their future. So much so that they weep. Here's the thing I want you to know about Acts 20. You can't fake this. You can't fake it. These people were not a project to Paul. They were his people. He had spent the better part of three years pouring into them, teaching them, discipling them, encouraging them, preparing them. He loved them so much that when he knew he wasn't going to see him again, he sent Timothy to come and minister to them. I don't know if you remember that we said this, but First and Second Timothy are actually written to Timothy while he's ministering in Ephesus. Paul loved these people with all of his heart, and he wanted the best for them. But he knew, based on what he was called to do, he probably wasn't going to see him again. So he says goodbye to them in this moment, in Acts 20, and it's heavy. All goodbyes are heavy hard. But something happens, and Paul feels this nudge, and he, he realizes that even though I can't see them face to face, my words still matter. My words are still powerful. And so he sits down and he pens this letter we've been studying, Ephesians. He would pen First and Second Timothy as well, but he wants his words to have a profound influence on the life of these Christians. And so he writes to them. And we've been studying this, and we're going to come across these two verses that just hit me Given the fact of what's been taking place these last few weeks and the importance of our words, let's take a look at this. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Here's what Paul writes. He says, "For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." It's pretty simple, two verses. It starts out with for this reason, for for what reason? Well, we we spent 3 weeks, the last 3 Sundays studying verses 3 to 14. And in the original language, the Greek language, it's all one giant sentence, but we broke it up and many of your translations will break it up and add some punctuation. But in those verses, those first 14 verses of Ephesians, we learn that when Paul describes what it means to be a Christian, he celebrates things. Like, hey, when you became a Christian, you were adopted into God's family. That God has this incredible future for you. That he has sealed that future with the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. That God is present with you everywhere you go. And he's just celebrating this deep theological truth of all that it means to be a Christian. So he says, for this reason, for that reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus... What this means is, he said, so now I've heard about the way that you're living out all the truth we just talked about. So all that truth wasn't just theory for you guys. You've actually put it into practice. You actually carry yourself. It'd be like this. If we we were to spend time together, if I were to spend time three to five months in your home, when I got out, left your home after three to five months of living with you, I'd have a pretty good idea of what's important to you. I'd have a pretty good idea of where you put your trust. But the things that really... Uh, have captivated your affection. For some of you, you're like, that's all the sermon you needed today. <laughs> you're gonna go home and like, we're making changes. But, <laughs> but this is what Paul's talking about. I've heard about the faith that you have in the Lord Jesus. I had a seminary professor that defined biblical faith this way. It's not gonna be on the screens. If you take notes, you can write this down. I didn't get it to them in time. Uh, it, it, it's this. I believe the facts about Jesus. I trust the promises of Jesus. And I obey the commands of Jesus. So so let's break that down. Paul's complimenting their faith. So what he sees in them is this. They believe the facts about Jesus, meaning everything that they did was really about trusting the fact that they believe Jesus is who he said he was. Like he is the most important thing. He'd be the topic of conversation in the home consistently coming up. They were welcoming the truth of Jesus into every aspect of their life. And Paul had heard about that. Like he'd heard about how much they trusted that the facts about Jesus were true. It wasn't theory to them. It wasn't just something that they checked off their list. They actually believed this stuff. Second thing, I trust the promises of Jesus. In other words, they they actually believed that what Jesus promised was going to happen. Meaning, if you're someone who carries shame and guilt, Jesus promised that you don't have to carry that anymore. He's redefined your future. Well, the way these Ephesian Christians were living, they were living that out. And Paul had heard about it. Like, they actually believe it. Or when Jesus would promise that whatever you go through in life, you can can have this promise that I'm with you. And I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of you to remind you of my presence. Well, these Christians lived as though that was true. They actually believed that God was with them with whatever they were doing in their life. And in addition to that, uh, they had this promise that Jesus said, I'm coming back. And no matter how hard it gets, there's going to be a day where I wipe every single tear from your eyes. And I'm with you, and I'm going to make everything new. Boy, they lived out that hope. You really get to see whether or not people trust in the promises of Jesus in their moments of loss and grief. Do they really believe that what Jesus promised is going to happen? Well, Paul would say, I've heard that, man, you're living that out. And then I obey the commands of Jesus. What that means is this. Like, when Jesus said it, they did it. They didn't take it lightly. Jesus wasn't an add-on to their hobbies. He wasn't just something that, oh, yeah, it's really cool to claim to be a Christian, and I kind of like the morals, but like when Jesus tells me to do hard things, like make definitive choices about things or to form my stance on a certain thing or to make a choice about how I approach certain things, I don't really want to include him in that. No, for these Christians, it was, hey, Jesus said it. They did it. They actually bowed to him as a king, not just the Savior. See, he was their Savior, and they've celebrated that, but he was also their king. And so when Jesus said it, they did it they obeyed everything that he taught. And so what Paul's saying here is this, I've heard about this. Like you you have a reputation for that kind of faith. You believe that Jesus really is who he said he was, and you trust in these promises, and you've been obeying everything he taught you to obey. You've been living out this life, and I've heard about it, but it wasn't just that. It wasn't selfish. It wasn't just about them, because he says, I've heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the care you have for all of God's people. It's like they're living out the greatest command. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And they're just living this out. This is what Jesus told us to do. And so they care for people. They care deeply for people. When there's a need, they meet a need. They gave sacrificially. They served sacrificially. See, for them, it was more about the interests of other people than it was about their own. And they would live this out. And Paul's saying there's this reputation. He says, I've left you in Miletus. I haven't seen you face to face. But boy, I've heard some incredible reports. And I want you to know that I see you and I see how you're living out the faith. And then he tells us this, he says, and because of that, I haven't stopped giving thanks for you. Every time I pray, your testimony of faithfulness just is in the front of my mind. The way you live for Jesus, I can't stop thinking about it. And it just has this impact on me. So I just thank God for you all the time. I love the way one translation translates this idea. It says this, whenever you cross my mind, I thank my God for you and the gift of knowing you. That's the type of life they were living. That's the impact it had on the Apostle Paul's life. So as they lived out this faith, as we just defined it, and they cared for God's people, Paul had heard about it. Two things that really stand out to me that like, I've wrestled with all week. The first one is this. Can you imagine how good it would have felt to read this? I mean, think about it. Just put yourself in their position for a minute. You're a Christian. You live in a culture that is hypersexualized, which is probably hard to imagine for us, right? Temptation all around you. You live in a culture that's not pro your faith. They're against your faith and they want to do things to make it hard on you. You live in a culture where the Roman government is persecuting Christians. You live in a culture where it's anything but easy to live out your faith in Jesus. And so there's probably days, weeks, seasons of your spiritual journey where you just kind of feel exhausted. And you start to think, I'm just spinning my spiritual wheels here. I, like, Are we even making any progress? Am I, is my faith even impacting anything? Is this worth it? And then this letter shows up. This letter gets read. And Paul says, oh, no, it matters. You guys have a reputation for standing firm, for loving and caring for people. It's really evident to everybody who comes through Ephesus that there's this group of Christians who take Jesus very seriously. And the impact is unbelievable. And Paul writes, man, and all of a sudden, a spark is lit. A flame is fanned in the heart of these Christians and they continue to be able to keep going. You ever felt that? You ever felt like you're just spinning your spiritual wheels and then all of a sudden someone says the right thing to you about how your faith has impacted their life? Let me ask it this way. Have you ever felt the need to tell somebody else about the impact that their faith has had on your life? What would it look like to be a group of people that was constantly looking for ways to point out when you saw somebody living for Jesus and the impact that it made? Think about how that would shape a culture, a church culture, a community, if we're just looking for ways to complement instead of looking for ways to divide. It would be incredible. I don't know if you know this, I, I'll give you an example of it. We have this ministry here at the church. It's a group of people that for years have been doing this, and they, they, you wouldn't know it unless you've been on the receiving end of it. They make meals, but, but not just any meal, they make funeral dinners. And so, when we have a funeral here at the church, we provide a meal, and it doesn't matter how many people in the family need to come to the meal. We have this goal of saying, hey, we, you need some time to debrief and to just be in the moment together, and you shouldn't have to worry about eating. And so, we'll take care of it. And so, we provide it at no cost to the family. And there's this group of people that come in, and they've been doing it for years and years, and they come in and they prepare the meal. And they get all kinds of meals from people in the church, and they prepare the meal, and then they serve the meal, and they smile. And they pray over the family, and they clean everything up when it's over. So the family never has to even think about it. Recently, they did a funeral dinner for over 100 people at no cost to the family. And they would never want me to tell you who they are, so I'm not going to tell you their names. But there's a lot of non-Christians in that group of 100 that were seated, seated in a church and impacted by the faithfulness of a group of people that just show up and serve food. Actually said how much of an impact that, that made on them. See, that's what Paul's doing. He's like, no, no, no. Like, you're not spinning your spiritual wheels. Your faith matters, and it's making a difference. Here's the other thing that really kind of blows me away is that Paul didn't have to write these words. Like, he didn't have to write this part of the letter. Think about it this way. If you were to pick up, like, finish with chapter 1, verse 14, and pick up in chapter 1, verse 17, you'd never know the difference. You miss no theological big truth. Right? Paul could have just kept going. He's just encouraging this church to continue to grow. You wouldn't have even known it. They're not throwaway verses. because no verse in the Bible is a throwaway verse. But they kind of don't really impact the reader today the way they would have then. But boy, don't they? Are they not a vivid reminder of what it means to take the time to pause for just a moment and to address something that the Spirit's nudging you to address that might spark something in their spiritual life? So I struggled. Like, how do you challenge the church? Because I don't want to make anybody feel guilty, but I'm okay if the Holy Spirit causes you to wrestle a little bit this week. I think that's healthy for us to do a little bit of inventory of our hearts to just see, like, hey, God, what are you trying to say to me in this passage of Scripture? How do I take this home so that we're not sitting in a seat staring at a stage on Sunday morning, that you're actually taking this and doing something with it during the week? So two questions for us to be able to do that. The first question is this. Have you lived out your faith... In the Lord Jesus and your love for his people in such a way that others take notice and cannot help but remember you in their prayers. And this isn't meant to be a guilt trip. And I say that with all sincerity. That's where my hesitation came in sharing it with you. But I I do want it to stir something in you to begin to ask yourself Am I actually living out my faith? If somebody were to watch my life, would they say that I have trust, I, I believe the facts about Jesus, I trust the promises of Jesus, and I obey the commands of Jesus? Would they spend time with me and say, man, the way that guy loves Jesus has changed something about him, and I want more of it. Would your faith impact their life? Don't overthink it, please. Like, it doesn't take, Jesus works with mustard seeds and loaves and fish. It doesn't take a lot. You just got to offer it. Like, here, God, this is what I've got right now. and I want my faith to increase, but I, I want it to make a difference in the lives of people. The second question is this. What are some of the unspoken things that you need to say before you no longer have an opportunity to say them? You're not guaranteed tomorrow. I'm pretty sure that if you're a follower of Jesus, the Spirit's put a nudge on you here and there to say something that you probably need to say. Someone you need to forgive. And you've been holding back, I don't know if I want to forgive yet. And and, and you just feel it. And if that opportunity was never allowed to be there again, what would happen? Maybe it's time to forgive. Maybe it's time to seek forgiveness from somebody that you've harmed. Maybe there's somebody you need to say, I love you to, And for whatever reason, it's just kind of hard to get those words out. And maybe it's time now to say, God, I'm going to obey. I'm going to just say this and trust that you're going to do something with it. Someone you need to encourage. What would it look like this week? If all of us took a few moments, just this many people, look around the room, this many people took a moment and paused and said, whose faith has made an impact on my life? And what if we all sat down and wrote a bunch of letters and overwhelmed the post office this week? Because we said, I don't want to wait too long. I need this person to know that they've impacted my life in such a profound way. And we began to write, ever since I knew about your faith in the Lord Jesus and the way that you've cared for people, I can't help but thank God for you. What would that look like if we actually took the time to say the unspoken things that we've been holding back from? Our words, spoken or unspoken, are so powerful. And God can do so much with them. Let me close out with this. A lady named Marianne Bird wrote an article a long time ago. It was a memoir of sorts of her childhood. Let me read to you what she wrote. I grew up knowing I was different. And I hated it. I was born with a cleft palate. And when I started school, my classmates made it clear to me how I looked to others. A little girl with a misshapen lip, crooked nose, lopsided teeth, and gargled speech. When schoolmates asked me, what happened to your lip? I would tell them that I'd fallen and cut it on a piece of glass. Somehow it seemed more acceptable to have suffered an accident than to have been born different. I was convinced that no one outside my family could love me. There was, however, a teacher in the second grade whom we all adored, Mrs. Leonard by name. She was short, round, happy, a sparkling lady. Annually, we had a hearing test. Mrs. Leonard gave the test to everyone in the class, and finally it was my turn. And I knew from past experiences that we would stand against the door, cover one ear, and the teacher, seated at her desk, would whisper something. And we would have to repeat it back to her. Things like, the sky is blue, or are you wearing new shoes today? I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth. Those seven words that changed my life forever. As Mrs. Leonard whispered, I wish you were my little girl. Not much changed for Marianne Bird after that. She was still the joke of her classroom. She was still deaf in one ear, the object of her classmates' ridicule. But, man, everything changed for her. Those seven words gave her hope. She stopped defining herself based on what her classmates said and began to see a bright future. She followed in the footsteps of this teacher that had changed her life and became a teacher herself, known for her compassion and care for people. Here's the thing. Mrs. Leonard didn't have to say those words. She could have said, the sky is blue. And the Apostle Paul didn't have to write verses 15 and 16. He could have just kept going. And you don't have to either. You can listen to this and just go about your life. You don't don't have to say the unspoken things that you feel led to say. You don't. You don't have to take your word seriously. You don't. But here's the thing. What could God do if you did? What could God do if you chose to say the unspoken things? Look, words kill. And words give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. I love you guys. Let's pray. Father, I sometimes wonder why you gave us so much power in our words. (laughs) Because we're not always good at stewarding that gift. We're reminded in your word, though, of what those words can do. And so, God, we need you today. Our words by themselves really don't do much, but, man, when our words have been impacted and changed and shaped and molded by your word that we've hidden in our hearts, then the overflow of that is so powerful. Father, would you take our words and do something powerful with them in the lives of the people around us? Would you give us the courage to say the unspoken things this week? I ask you for that in Jesus' name and all God's people said.